0: So, I have good news and bad news. Uh, the bad news is um, we're not doing a sermon today. We're doing two sermons. So pray that I get through. Pray that I get through them fast. And then the other bad news is I'm also doing the communion meditation, and it's not double space. So, so um, so today we will have Jonah Part Three, entitled. Jonah under his vine, if you remember that from Jonah chapter four. And then we're going to start our seeing the scripture series. So most people have been in or heard of the search the scripture series for which Greg is famous. Uh, There are many parts. And uh, Catherine actually gave me the idea to start this. Um, She said you have to do another message on Jonah, you have to talk about the vine and Jonah sitting under his vine. I was like, great, what she's talking about, we'll, we'll talk. So, so um, search the scripture series, part one, vine and fig tree, but beginning with Jonah under his vine. If you have a Bible, you could open it to Jonah chapter four, but don't look at it yet because something else is gonna be up on the screen first. It'll be the last verse of chapter three. Well, I guess you can look at that. All right, so what do we remember of, uh, of Jonah so far? Um, we remember, you remember the storyline. Ra- raise your hand if you were not here for any of the Jonah messages. We got, Greg put your hand down. Two, three, three, okay. So uh, raise your hand if you don't know the story of Jonah, if you're one of those three. Perfect, okay. So you'll have to get that from your own memory. We're gonna jump right into uh, chapter three. So God, figuratively speaking, raises Jonah from the dead and sends him outside Israel, not as a prophet to Israel like most of the prophets, he sends him outside Israel. What does that mean? Is that a bad sign? Yes. To preach to these Gentiles, a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. Whoa. Does that sound familiar or what? God raises Jonah from the dead like he gets buried under the waves, not the ground, but the waves, same thing. And just like we're buried uh, in baptism and we die with Christ and we're raised to life with him when we, as we are converted and baptized, right? So the book of Jonah gives readers a glimpse of the death and resurrection of Christ more than 700 years before it happened. God is always doing that in the Bible, making people's lives and the things that happen to them look like Christ's life and the things that Christ will do. Since God saw what was going to happen before he even made the world, he started putting these little things about Jesus all through the Old Testament. So the most important thing we're supposed to see when we read the Old Testament is how it points to Jesus. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josiah. If I were one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and you asked me to choose between having only the Old Testament or only the New Testament, I would have chosen the Old Testament. Without understanding books like Genesis, and Jonah, and Isaiah, and the Psalms, and how they talk about Jesus, we wouldn't ever be able to understand a book like Revelation. So in Jonah chapter three, Jonah goes to Nineveh and tells them, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you can kind of see the smile on his face. Um, And the people of Nineveh believed God, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, which is a little scratchy if you've never touched sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Like they super humble themselves immediately. So why is Nineveh responding to the word of the Lord this way? And all these prophets are having to go to Israel. Things are actually getting pretty bad in Israel at this time. So that, that should seem a little ominous to us. But you know, the Assyrians were some cruel men and women. Let me just say that the Ninevites deserved whatever they were about to get from the hand of God. They had taken violence and merciless cruelty to the next level. But when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What kind of God would do this? Let's go back to what we talked about in one of our first Jonah messages, Exodus chapter 34. God is telling Moses what his name is, and he doesn't say Yahweh. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And remember, Jonah has probably like preached and taught on this passage before. So just imagine Jonah's talking right now and teaching this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And if we have a slide of Exodus 34, let's put it up keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Jonah quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. No, I think I misread that. Moses, Jo, Oh. Yeah, Jonah, chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Oh, that's that's not good. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country?" That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, which remember we said is probably like, you know, here's little Israel and here's the Mediterranean Sea, here's like his world, really his world is like this big except he knows about the Assyrians and he hates them. He wants them all to die. And and Tarshish is probably like out here, probably in Spain. It's like as far away as you can get on like like on the map, you know. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to himself, uh, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So, here's 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 a, a map of here's our map of the Middle East. You got it? Here's Iraq. Okay, it's shaped like this. All right. You got Kuwait. You got other countries, Israel. So here's Iraq. Okay, modern day Iraq. And here's the city of, Adam, help me with the pronunciation one more time, Mosul, Mosul. Close. All right, so it's a big city, it's in Iraq, Um, and uh, it's a big city now, but in the old days it was Nineveh. Mosul like encloses or encompasses this, the ancient city of Nineveh. You can find its ruins there, they're kind of cool. ISIS just destroyed an important Babylonian, or, or I mean an important Assyrian city gate, uh, not long ago. It was a big bummer. Um, it had been standing for like thousands of years. Anyway, um, so uh, so here's Nineveh, and, uh, and I, I was Googling um, the, the average temperature month to month through the year in Mosul, Iraq, right? And uh, to summarize, it's hot. It's like India hot. So when I moved from Alaska to Ohio, uh, I got here, you know, August, the, my first August here was like between 90 and like 100 or 101, almost every single day the entire month of August. And I was like, I, I, I was licking <laughs> like in <laughs> hell. I was like, how can people live in a place like this? And at the end of the month, you know, I got on electrical lot and I. And it hasn't bothered me since I kind of like eat. But I don't, India, that'd be tough. So Iraq is like Mosul. It's, it's hot there. And uh, I don't know what month this was in, but if it was in the summer, like Jonah's in trouble. So he's got like this little booth and it is inadequate. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant ah. and made it come up over Jonah that, he might, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Stop. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I get that. I can relate with you, Jonah. Like, like a little plant, a little parasol, like, that would have made my day, would have made my week. So the heat is pretty bad. This is like scorching wind and scorching, he's probably not gonna get a little sunburned. Like, he might like have some serious dehydration going on here. This is a very kind thing God does. Contrast this with chapter four, verse one. Jonah was exceedingly glad about the plant. That's appropriate. Chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Huh. We're going to come right back to that. When, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is Better for me to die than to live. Okay, so like if you were kind of a wuss, like I could get that, like, like, like this is one day into it. He's probably not got like horrible blisters yet. It's hot, you know, he's thirsty. Like it, it, this is day one of being out there in this heat. This seems a little excessive. Um, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? for the plant. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Mm-hmm. You know, Nineveh was just about as big as Dayton proper. Think about this. A fiery evangelist comes to teach us that we've broken the law of God, and God is gonna destroy us, right? Like, it comes to Dayton. So we repent, Okay. And he's happier, the evangelist that came to preach to us is happier that he gets himself into the shade so that he isn't badly sunburned than he is that the 140 or 60,000 people in Dayton don't get scorched in the fire that never dies. In Mark 9:48, Jesus is talking about how seriously, he takes sin. And how would it be better to chop off your hand or your eyeball or your foot if your hand or your eye or your foot causes you to sin than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into hell to the unquenchable fire? He says, if your eyeball causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, get this, where... Their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. What is Jesus doing there? Getting eaten by worms and scorched by the heat of hell. That sounds like Jesus is quoting Jonah. Jesus is explaining that what happened to the plant in the book of Jonah will happen to sinners. Get it? Israel is like the plant, isn't it? God planted it, and then God caused it to wither away. This is a sign to Jonah. Jesus calls it when he teaches parables, to, when he teaches to the people of his day, like, I'm gonna give you the sign of Jonah. Well, this already was a sign to Jonah, because uh, who knows that in the Bible, Israel is always being compared to a vine or a tree like a grapevine or a fig tree or an olive tree, you know, plants, this is a sign to Jonah that his people are going to get scorched and worm-eaten if they do not repent. And Jonah's teaching in like the mid 700s BC, maybe about 750 or 760. So remember BC, years are counting down, 760, 750 thereabouts. In the year 722, which is only about 40 years later or one generation later, God sends the Assyrians to scorch their land and take their lives like a worm eats up a plant. So hold that thought because in sermon number two, we're going to come back to that. How how Jesus warned the Israelites of his day that they were like a fruitless fig tree and God was going to curse it so it would wither and that he would come against them in judgment before that generation had passed away. And in about the year 67 AD, like 40 years after Jesus said that, he began to send another very violent empire that reminds us of the Assyrians with all their crucifixion and torture and all that. The historians tell us that in 70 AD, uh, uh, Jerusalem, their capital city, was burned with fire and that the siege was so bad that people were starving and they literally ate each other they turned to cannibalism. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. Mm -hmm. And the Romans took away their land and pulled all the stones of the temple apart that year in 70 AD. Just like you said, not one stone will be left on another before that happened. What had the Jews done for all those years that they deserved to be cut down like an ax cuts down a tree that's no good? Answer that question, and you'll understand your Old Testament and your New Testament. For until you believe, until we believe that we are fully deserving of God's righteous judgment because of our sin, we will not really receive Christ. Or understand how merciful he really is to us. Every day. Let's get back to Jonah. God said to him, do you do well to be angry? Does anybody remember where God said that for the first time in the Bible? Greg says, Cain. God said to Cain in uh, Genesis 4, 6 through 8. Let me flip there and read it real quick. Uh, he said, Cain, why are you angry and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you or master you, but you must master it, right? And then next paragraph, Cain talks to his brother. And then the Bible, like the most sacred of all relationships is like brother, brother, sister, brother, right? it's kind of like emphasized in scripture and in the culture of the Mediterranean more than parents and children in, in, in one sense, right? And right there in Genesis chapter four, the beginning of the Bible, since almost all the main themes in scripture start, have their start in Genesis, as we're going to see, right there, um, Cain kills his brother. And yeah, that's, that was like the worst sin. So God is quoting that to Jonah, and Jonah gets it. It's not lost on him. He's a teacher of the law. He's a Bible teacher. He gets it, oh, I am about to commit the sin of Cain, right? He didn't recognize that the Assyrians were like, like, should be like brothers to him because in God's eyes, even though he sent the gospel to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, in God's eyes, everybody is a descendant of Adam. So why does Jonah want to die? Why does he want to die? Is he as mature as maybe a young boy who says, fine then, I don't want Christmas, you know, because you're telling me you can't have like a present early or something, right? Raise your hand if you've heard that this week. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Daniel didn't say that, but he said something almost just like that. So... Um, So why does Jonah ask to die? Why does he say, I want to die? Why does he say, I'd be better off dead than here, doing this with you, God, participating in what you're doing here? Why does he want to die? die He'd rather die than have God show mercy to people he hates. And? He's pathetic and he needs God to save him. Let's all amen that. Every day. We, he, he is pathetic and he needs God to save him. So that kind of needs to be, without being too self-deprecating, that kind of needs to be our daily prayer life. You know, every one of us. Because it's the repentant that find mercy. Right? So why else? Think, think like a psychologist. Why does he want to die? Why does he want to die? What? He's miserable. He's desperate. He's miserable. He's depressed. Yeah. His desire has been thwarted. This doesn't make sense to Jonah. Jonah gets something about God. He's a Bible teacher. You know, we hope he gets something. The Pharisees got something about God. You know, people were saying of Jesus, like, hey, are you Jeremiah? Because they understood the book of Jeremiah so well that they're like, Jeremiah in his life and in his teaching is like, a foreshadowing of Jesus. We see all these parallels. Like they're, these are like college professor smart, you know, but they didn't get Jesus. You know? so, so Jonah gets something about God. Uh, he understood that God was right in sweeping away an entire city of men and women and their children with them for their sin. In this way, Jonah understands the righteousness of God's wrath better than we do raise your hand if you know turn off the video i'm just kidding if you've accused god or been angry with god because you think hell is too harsh a punishment or if you've been angry at god because we humans suffer sometimes very great suffering and loss and death. I have. That's partly because of the dogma of our culture. We are totally socialized to believe this. There's no such thing as sin. Everybody is a pretty good person. Nobody is allowed to tell anyone else what to do. That's being controlling. But you wouldn't believe that if you had grown up in Jonah's day, in Jonah's day and age, but we don't believe in sin. That's the thought we we find ourselves wrestling with, even much of our Christian lives, maybe. If nobody is a sinner, if people only make mistakes, then there can't be any judgment. No sin, no judgment. So, like Cain, we don't like that God is a lawgiver. We don't want God telling us, you know, my way or the highway with none of the... Emotional baggage associated with that phrase. (laughs) And now, we uh, don't like that God is a judge. We just like that God is tenderly compassionate, with a capital T and a capital C. That's how it's written here. Tenderly compassionate to wicked, rebellious sinners. Does anybody not like... Does anybody struggle with that thought? I have, okay. But I still like it, because... I get, at least I get, you know, get caught in the net of Christ, you know. I'm okay with um, really evil people getting saved and forgiven and getting off scot-free as long as I am, right? Is that, is that a hard thought for anybody to swallow? Not, not very for me. I'm, I'm cool with that. I just want to get saved. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, that's where we are. But or we are, wicked, rebellious sinners. But we wouldn't know it because we don't believe our sin is as bad as God believes it is. So Jonah is the opposite of us. Like us, he didn't believe his people deserve judgment, but at least he believed that the Ninevites deserved judgment like, like a really bad one. And they did. So Jonah understood the first half of the gospel better than we do. But he didn't understand God's heart. And that's what we're after today. We want to know his heart because he is our father. And there's no more important relationship we'll ever have. Not with my wifey. Not with Daniel, Lily, and David. Not with Adam, Rob, Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan. Not with any of you guys, not with Greg. There's no more important relationship we'll ever have than with our Father. So it's more important to know his heart than anything else. So that's what we're after. We're going to spend the rest of our eternal lives with him. In Jeremiah 9.24, God says, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice, And righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. And there's no contradiction there. He can delight in mercy and he can be righteously angry. And both of them to the full degree. And both of those right things that are in his heart are truly and wisely combined in the person of God. And manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. Micah seven eighteen says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So Lord, we pray that you would show us your heart so that we can be one with you And have love for one another, even for our enemies and for those who spitefully have mistreated us. Matthew 5, verse 43 says, Jonah had heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But Jesus says to us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven." I'm just gonna pause that, some quick application here. Some of you guys like Second Amendment rights and you're into that sort of thing. Um, And we, all of the people in that group have read people saying like, yeah, you can have my Second Amendment rights when you pry them from my cold dead hands. Like, I bet you a lot of us have read that phrase. And, And maybe something resonated with us. Um, we actually have to distance ourselves in one sense from that kind of thinking because we can't miss and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise, like, you know, Sun comes up, the earth has life, heat, it sustains the entire ecosystem. He, susti- he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. God has kindness in his heart towards the wicked every day and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, they're the Ninevites, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Amen. Amen. And now let's have another sermon. Vine and fig tree. This is our introduction to seeing the scripture series. We are going to begin maybe a 10-parter, maybe a 20-parter. This is an open invitation to, uh, well, Greg has been doing this for a while, and uh, Catherine gave me the idea for part one. This is an invitation to uh, Nathan, uh, Daniel, Josiah, um, anybody who's teaching to teach uh, to teach a part of this. So we want to go through the Bible and we want to see the Scripture. If you don't use your mind's eye when you read the Bible, you'll miss a huge percentage of the Bible's message. So we're going to take phrases like the child that's born of the Virgin, or you know, like the the promised Son, or the Son of David, or. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Greg's done mountains and talked a lot about rivers and how a word picture as simple as a mountain, actually, like God really likes that word picture. And so he's using it over and over um, dozens of times in the Bible. And we've talked about that quite a bit. Um, And that's sort of related to today's. Number one, vine and fig tree. So today we're going to start right here in Jonah. Jonah, in chapter four, is under a what? A plant. This is not a very charismatic church. (laughs) Jonah is under a plant, right? God planted it, God cursed it. Do you feel something ominous there? You should if you heard the first sermon. If you do, you have a well-developed sense for biblical imagery that plant represents the land and the people of Israel with its temple in it. God caused them to grow like a fruitful vine. And now God is getting ready to destroy them. And guess who he's going to send to destroy Israel? We just talked about it, that's right. The Assyrians, as prophesied in Micah chapter 1. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. We spent some time in Nahum last time. Micah has uh, some really good stuff, and we're going to look at the vine and fig tree image in uh, in Micah. In the Bible, the fig tree is an image, as is the vine, of the people of the land. So let's think about that. Fig trees bear Figs. figs, and figs are? Fruit. They bear little figs. You can eat them. Figs taste good. Uh, Fig trees bear fruit with seed in them after their own kind. So that when you go plant them, they're supposed to do what God made them to do. Make more fig trees that bear fruit and seed. So bearing fruit is multiplication after its own kind. right? Bearing fruit in the Bible is also um, bearing good fruit instead of bad fruit. There's this uh, picture in one of the prophets where where you got a basket, it's a basket of fruit. What's in it? It's figs. And you got another basket of fruit, what's in it? Get yeah. figs. They're good figs, sweet, juicy, delicious. You know, you can pick them and stick them in your bag and if you're going on a journey in ancient Israel or in modern day Israel, because Israel is now filled with fig trees very nicely, um, you can take them and that's your candy bar, right? That's your, that's your power bar. Yeah, it's like perfect for taking with you. And then you got in the other basket, about, uh, they're, they're rotten figs. And God is using this as a word picture, and he's like, uh, you're this one to Israel, right? So there's God telling the people, his people, Israel, that you guys are rotten, a bunch of rotten fruit, and you should have been good fruit. God loves this word picture. And we're going to see he's going to use it again and again. The fig tree is always tied to the land. That's easy to think about. Think from your botany class or your arboreal course. You got a tree. Here are some leaves and branches. Got some fruit, hopefully. You got a trunk, and then you got the ground down there. And the trunk is inextricably intertwined with the dirt and rocks of the ground because the roots, like, you can't take them out. Uh, when the wind comes, trees don't usually blow over. They're usually the thing standing. Maybe some leaves get ripped off. When uh, even a flood can come through, and often the trees are what's left standing because they're so tied to the ground, to the land. So the fig tree is always tied to the land. It's the fruit of the land. You've got land, and land produces trees, and then the trees make fruit. The roots can't be separated from the land. So when John the Baptist comes... And he's like, the axe. It's coming to get you. Your mind should be flashing to like modern-day horror movies, you know, with axes coming through doors and stuff. And and John the Baptist is like, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's already aimed. Now he just has to pull it back and swing it. You don't chop trees down at the roots. You chop trees down in the trunk. But God is cutting off Israel like a, like down at the roots. He is actually pulling them out of the land. The Jews are gonna get dispersed in this diaspora all over the known world. And that's why Jewish people today are usually Jewish and Russian, or Jewish and this, or Jewish and that. Like, the, the community of, of Jewish people is, uh, encompasses many nations, because that's where they've been living. So, So today we're talking about vines and fig trees. Let's look at our three key scriptures. If we could get the next slide on the board, if we have it, one Kings four twenty-five. Let's skip over Micah. Let's look at our three key scriptures to look and see what they say and what they have in common. One Kings four twenty-five. See if we play. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan, that's like one of the northernmost significant community, even to Beersheba, that's like the southernmost significant community in Israel or in Judah. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. So we're gonna talk about the son of David as like a phrase, a buzz phrase that God uses over and over throughout many scriptures, and then of course Jesus's the son of David we've been waiting for. But in the days of Solomon, I'll bet you, people thought that Solomon, who is David's kid and heir to the throne, was the son of David that was prophesied. Remember, we talked about Solomon uh, uh, a couple months back. We said Solomon like, had everything, and then he lost it all. And we talked about how and why that happened and how that was a warning to us. But in Solomon's day, before it, you got to the end of Solomon's life, um, you had... Like, peace, prosperity, they lived in the land. Everybody, like, nobody's going hungry. Everybody's living under his own vine. Even though, like, taxes were high, they still had quite a measure of, of uh, maybe if a little bit less freedom. They, they, had, they had their own stuff. There was, like, high property ownership in those days, which is a very good thing. And so everybody had his own vine, and his own fig tree. Now, did everybody have his own vine and his own fig tree? Trick question. Not everybody's a him. So, no. And some people were a little poor, and some people uh, didn't live. Uh, you know, some people lived in like a house in the city. You know, like I don't have any trees. I don't have any trees in my yard. Well, my neighbor's trees come over my fence quite a ways, so I could claim them as mine. Um, I cut them back every year. So. Um, so everybody living under his vine and under his fig tree, that's like this, this saying. Let's, let's, let's find that one again. God's trying to tell us something. It's a good thing to live under your vine and under your fig tree. Peace, lots of money, safety, etc. goes along with this stuff. Micah chapter four, verse four. But they shall sit... Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So there's that phrase again. Everybody's sitting under his vine and under his fig tree. Micah is quoting First Kings, right? So, so why doesn't he say every man? Um, why doesn't God say through Micah the prophet, everybody shall be on your own property and have enough food to eat? God likes these word pictures. And if we don't get the word picture, and if we don't notice the same word pictures being repeated and over and over through the Old Testament and then giving us the ability to understand when they're used in the New Testament, especially in Revelation, but much in the Gospels too, then we won't get the New Testament, like so much of the New Testament because the, Old Testament, the New Testament is, has got roots in the Old Testament and, and it, it grows out of that. Again, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10. In that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So here we have this mysterious phrase that God likes, and we've seen it several times, like almost exactly quoted. What was different about the third, the third time in Zechariah? Did you guys catch the difference? Uh, what? You invite your neighbor. Everyone. Everyone. So it's not just... Everybody under his own vine and his own fig tree, First Kings. It's not just uh, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, Micah chapter 4. But now in Zechariah, in that day, this coming day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. What do you think that's getting at? Evangelism. And? Discipling the nations. This is the eschatology of the scripture. Eschatology means what we're hoping will happen in the future. And hope, like the book of Hebrews uses the word hope. Like the kind of hope that doesn't get disappointed. Or eschatology also could mean what we're fearing will happen in the future. As we studied in the book of Daniel some months back... um, when Christians are going through a period of, Christian, of church history, like Daniel did, it's hard to have hope for the future. And thus, the books of Daniel and Revelation were written as a challenge to holy living and, and books of hope for the future. They, they were written to people who were already afraid. Daniel and his people under the Babylonians and then the Persians. And uh, revelation to first century Jews under the Roman occupation. And all this crucifixion is happening all the time. The taxes are like ridiculously high. Like, things are bad. And it's hard to have hope if you're a first century Jew or if you're living in exile in Babylon and you watch the temple get burned as you're being carried away like with a fish hook or something, like probably without your clothes, like to some foreign land and and you're probably not coming back. Like it's hard to have hope. It is understandable that Christians in every age struggle to have their eschatology line up with scripture which gives a, a hopeful eschatology of victory, as opposed to a fearful eschatology of things are bad now. What's it gonna be like tomorrow? Right? Which is what we would have thought in our natural minds. But God is greater than our hearts, even when our hearts prophesy doom. How many of your hearts prophesy doom sometime? I was standing in the back uh, 31 minutes ago And I looked at John Bradbury, and I said, pray for me. He's like, you want to pray now? And he's, I'm like, no, I'm too nervous. (laughs) So here we have this mysterious phrase, which God likes, and we saw it several times in Scripture, almost exactly the same way each time, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. So it's an image of the people of God being in the place where they belong, doing the will of God under God's kingly rule, really ruling with him, and we've got plenty to eat, and what are we eating? We're eating figs and grapes. And what are we drinking? Wine. Yeah, I thought you were going to say fig juice. (laughs) So grapes, you know, make grape juice, and they also make wine. But in ancient Israel, lest you think it was as much grape juice as wine, how long does your juice last after you squeeze your oranges or whatever? I don't know if anybody makes their own juice out there. Okay, pretend you're a vegan and you got a juicer. You make your own grape juice and, uh, and then you filter it and you got this nice grape juice. How long is that going to last thousands of years before the refrigerator was invented? Not too long, unless you put it in a, a piece of leather and you tie it shut and you leave it set hanging up. And, well, it's going to, like, there's yeast everywhere. You know, try finding unleavened bread you know, in the wild. Like, everything gets leavened quick. You know, the yeast is going to ferment it. So, so it did turn into wine, and that was. That was what they were eating and drinking. And wine is of course a symbol of joy because unless it's in excess, it uh, quickly leads to more joy, praise God. So this is a time of joy. This phrase goes along with joy, goes along with hope. Uh, Hope of less sorrow because every one of us individually and every generation of Christians in every place has sorrow, right? That's why we have songs like Joy to the World. No more let sin and sorrows reign and, and thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing the joy that everybody under their vine and under their fig tree known as far as the curse is found. And if you're like, uh, what's the guy's name who has Tesla and SpaceX? Elon Musk. Elon Musk. If you're like him, it's gonna extend to Mars, he hopes. Elon Musk is a guy, he's he has got a car company, and he's got a, a rocket company, and his, his kind of like dream is to send people to Mars and have a little colony there. He's getting closer. So, God is trying to tell us something by the Holy Spirit putting this phrase supernaturally into the minds of the writers of scripture and supernaturally making sure that these pages were not lost to history so that we have them today, and when we read them, we have to recognize, hey, I've read that before. And we have to be thinking hope, wine, peace, prosperity. You don't move to a new country um, that has like some you know, some plants and some rivers and stuff, and you're like, oh, I know, um, I'm here, this is year one, I'll plant crops. Yeah, you plant wheat, you know, it grows next year. You plant corn, it grows next year. You can have like your tortillas and your bread, you know, next year, good. But if you plant a fig tree, you've got years of waiting. You've got years of waiting before it bears fruit. There's like a longevity tied up in this phrase. It's like a longevity that it's gonna last longer. So when we read that phrase, we need to feel it, we need to eat it and and drink it and taste it, right? And we need to know as we eat and drink in peace and safety that the Lord is with us to accomplish these things. So one more thing, where is the person sitting in this thrice repeated phrase? He's sitting under his tree on the land, eating the fruit of it in peace. Now let's turn to Mark chapter 11. Or it might be on the board. Nope. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. You can listen if you don't want to turn to it. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, and by the way, um, if I've lost you by now, and you forget everything I'm about to say, it's all said better on the Gospel Coalition website um, on an article called Why Did Jesus Curse the Fig Tree? The passage we're beginning to read. So I'm referencing that and recommending it. Um, So this is like uh, early spring, I think, and it's not time for the fig trees to be bearing fruit. So seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, it's actually not time for them to have their leaves out yet, right? seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, so this is an early one, um, like Israel came before the Gentiles. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Well, that's kind of to be expected. And then in this unexpected uh, turn of events, Jesus, the, the peacemaker, just taught, blessed are the peacemakers. He said, may no one ever eat from fruit from you again and his disciples heard it. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, that's the next day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. It had immediately withered away. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Thanks, Peter. (laughs) That's what Jesus said. He's like, yeah, I know, Peter, I'm God. Like, I made that tree. <laughs> it's it's Send me down now. Like, right. But Peter's processing this, and uh, you know, and we're lucky enough to have Peter's response, it helps us process it. Thank you, Peter. Um, when Jesus curses the fig tree, he's cursing their fruit, their peace, and their heritage in the land. If you're a Jew in that time, like it took you so long just to get to the promised land. And there are all these prophecies about how God's people is gonna be in God's place. That is, these borders in the Near East, in the Middle East. That's what they're thinking, right? They're thinking God's people for all time will always live right here. And because I'm born Jewish, I'm gonna live right here forever. And their hope is that God is going to see to it that, you know, uh, like, no matter what happens, let's say, come hell or high water, uh, God is going to send us a deliverer, and he's going to get the Romans out, just like he brought us back from Babylon, although he didn't really bring them back from Assyria, not, not so much, interestingly. But he brought Judah back from Babylon, some of them. And... And now the Romans are here, they're occupied. Uh, the Greeks occupied them before the Romans got there. Things have been pretty bad for a while, and, but they know the Christ is coming and he'll get rid of the Romans and I guess, you know, he'll sit on David's throne and he'll give us peace, prosperity. Well, when Jesus curses the fig tree, he's cursing their fruit. That is their multiplication as they were after their own kind. He's cursing their heritage in the land. He's, he's a lawyer giving a lawsuit because they've broken the covenant and in 70 AD, he brings it and he destroys, that is, he has the Romans destroy the temple and the kingdom of God was given to a people who were producing its fruit, the Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. And so Paul explains in Romans the Gentiles were grafted in when, now Paul uses the often repeated Old Testament word picture of an olive tree, and God is like frequently calling Israel, you're an olive tree. So they're like, okay, I'm an olive tree. So, so when Paul teaches, you know, you're a wild olive branch, and you got grafted in, if you know like, uh, what's the word, horticulture, you got a, a fruit tree, and it's bearing a, you know, fruit that's not that great, you can, you can go over and you can get a branch from a really good fruit tree that's super healthy, probably has better genes, and you can cut off a branch from it real carefully, and then you can bring it over here and you can cut off that branch that wasn't producing fruit, you know, just needed to be thrown away into the fire and burned um, and, and, and you can graft it and you can stick it there and like tie it together, you know, with cloth straps, right? And, and you can actually make that, like the, the, what do you call the little tubules can grow together and that root will nourish this foreign branch. And Paul says in Romans, That's you, you're the foreign branch, you Gentiles. And you should not boast thinking, you know, you were cut off, Jews, so that we could be grafted in. You should instead be thinking like, if God cut off the natural branch, what's gonna become of me if I harden my heart in unbelief, right? So when God, when Jesus curses the fig tree, he's quoting this vine and fig tree, motif, a repeated word picture through the Old Testament. He's quoting the word picture of the olive tree and the, the um, and they're supposed to get it because they know their Old Testament so well. So the people of God are often also called the vineyard that God planted. And then God is called the Lord of the harvest, Right? you have also heard the parable of the keepers of the vineyard. Remember what happened in the parable of the keepers of the vineyard? Like, there's this king, he plants a vineyard, he goes away. And he sends somebody to the tenants who are renting it to collect the fruit. And they're like, no, and they beat the guy up. And then he's like, that's weird. Okay, well, I'm going to send another one. Don't know why that happened. So he sends another servant to collect the fruit. And and they, you know, rob him, throw him out. You know, take his shoes, take his Nikes, right? Like, so, so then he's like, that's ridiculous that I should plant a vineyard, and that the people who are living on my land, eat, like, like eating under my trees, under my vine, and eating the fruit that I caused to grow should not give me the first fruits that are due me. Like, if you're an ancient Israelite, you know the concept of first fruits, right? And so he sends his son. He's like, they will listen to him. But if you know the New Testament, and we all do, uh, they did not listen to the heir. They did not listen to the heir of the throne of David. Hmm. So they thought they were going to steal the vineyard and kill the son and just squat on the land because... I'm Jewish and the land belongs to me. I'm, I'm rooted in the land. Jesus is saying that they're going to kill him when he tells that parable and that the Lord will kill them and take away their vineyard and give it to a people who produce its fruit and give him what is due him. So God takes the land and the covenant promises of God away from the Jews and gives the land that is the whole earth to the church, which is mostly Gentiles. And ever since that day, the church has been forcefully advancing and filling the whole earth and bearing fruit. What will happen to the Jews? God will keep his promises to them. But God is going to fulfill his promises to them through the church. And through their coming to Christ, the only Christ, the only way to the Father, through their coming to Christ, through the church, which holds the keys to the kingdom, Israel, again, will be blessed. We're going to close with John chapter 15, verse 15. Jesus said to his disciples in that intimate meal which we are about to celebrate again, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. The one that prunes it, right? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Have you been pruned? My kids have been pruned. Kids sit down. Does that sound like Jonah when that vine withered and it was scorched by the east wind? This word picture comes up again and again in the Bible. Don't miss it. It's important. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We said, bearing fruit isn't just holy living, you pietists. Bearing fruit is holy living because it has to be good fruit. And, and I'm saying that because I have a very piet, strongly pietistic background. Don't be offended. And, 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 and fruit is multiplication, after its own kind, after a good kind. So as you disciple people, as Christ is discipling you, and as he is discipling you through your disciples, through your congregation, through the scriptures, and through the spirit of God. We have to be doing this, but if you, uh, by, my fa- my, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Every tree does bear fruit after its own kind, or it doesn't last. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you because. I'm God and I have to have my way. These things I have spoken to you because I'm a little controlling and I don't want you to have fun. (laughs) What? Have you ever thought that? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I've come to give you life of. Abundant life, tons of life. David said, you have given me more joy than when their grain and new wine abound. So in the upcoming messages, um, we'll talk about uh, more biblical themes. And uh, and if you have a phrase or a a word picture in the Bible you want to understand and don't uh, well enough, um, talk to any of the people that come up here on Sunday mornings and We'll try to make that happen. And thank you for this. I realize we've uh, glanced over most of the passages I wanted to touch on that quote this vine, fig tree, olive branch, olive shoot imagery. Um, So this is a quick survey. So um, I'm gonna ask uh, the people serving communion to come forward and begin.